Welcome to the 56th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. I'm David Helvarg, and my co-host is still Vicki Nichols-Golstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. Hello, everyone. We're also being joined again by Blue Frontier's Natasha Benjamin, this time because she's working on our documentary about California's kelp forests. Hello. Today, our guest is Francesca Coe, a dive instructor and competitive free diver, a member of the Farallands National Marine Sanctuary Advisory Council and director of the Greater Farallands Association. If that's not enough, she's editor of the DeeperBlue.com website and chief media officer for Vertical Blue, the global freediving competition. Unfortunately, having played a key role in creating the California Marine Life Protection Act that essentially took our world-class state park system and put it into the ocean, she now has to join the effort to restore Northern California's iconic kelp forest that have seen a near total collapse in less than a decade. Before we get on to this, this climate-linked emergency and other topics, why don't we start with your background, Francesca? Uh, where were you raised and how'd you first connect with the ocean and how'd you become a scuba diver and free diver? I uh, am a native New Yorker and I would say I first connected with the ocean as a very small child on the wild and long beaches of um, Long Island, Jones Beach. My parents would take us there and um, my dad was cheap and he would make us get up at the crack because we lived about an hour away in Westchester County. And we would have to get up really early and bring our sleeping bags because my dad didn't want to pay for parking. And so we would get there before seven, before they started charging for parking. And then we would get in our sleeping bags as we were freezing. And I was the youngest and I can just remember being cold in the beginning of the day and then having enormous joy for playing in the waves and the water in the middle of the day. And then the horror of having to be sandy and tired, carrying all my gear back to the car in the very, very hot sand. And for whatever reason, my family never parked at the beaches where there was like a boardwalk or it was very close. They always chose, I think it was like beach number four, which was like, it felt when you're four years old, it feels like 30 miles. <laughs> um, but that's where I first connected. And then I transplanted, as many folks do, to uh, California, uh, first Southern California, and then ultimately San Francisco and Northern California, which is for me home and where my heart is uh, all the time. And that is really where I began my journey um, both as a scuba diver and an instructor. I'm sort of a late bloomer. You know, I always wanted to get into these ocean sports uh, as a young person, as a college student, but nobody ever has the time or the money. You know, a lot of these things require classes and certifications and equipment. And, um, you know, when you're paying your way through school and doing it all on your own, uh, something like a scuba certification is a luxury. So I actually didn't start diving um, until I was about 30. And then I just, it was for me a voracious appetite of just going to the next level and learning the next skill, the next technique, the next certification. Uh, so really a rapid ascent, no pun intended. <laughs> and you picked some very cold water to start your scuba experience because that Pacific Ocean is chilly. I like to call it refreshing. 
And um, I like <laughs> to think of uh, Northern California, especially off the coast of San Francisco, where we're so fortunate to be one of only five upwellings in the world. I like to think of it as the kitchen, right? Everybody likes to go to the kitchen because the most stuff is going on in the kitchen. And, you know, off of Monterey, San Francisco, Sonoma, Mendocino, those refreshing, cool waters, you know, they provide so much nutrient-dense water and biodiversity that all the seabirds, all the marine mammals, all the fish, all the humans, you know, we're all feeding off of that literally and figuratively. So I wouldn't change that experience. And I've had the good fortune to dive many places, many warm tropical places, which is also lovely, but I would never give up uh, Northern California diving. Tell us about your first, you know, encounters in the kelp forests and, and sort of how you discovered this. I, I agree. They're like the two alien worlds I like to visit are the warm waters of tropical reefs, coral reefs, and the amazing kelp forest in Northern California. And, and just talk about your first dives there and what you discovered and how it's impacted you. So I did many of my first courses, both down in Monterey, um, Lover's Beach. There are three different sections of Lover's Beach. And we would go down to the third section, which was really like an aquarium in terms of the white sand and the tawny kelp and the, you know, aqua water and all of the, you were mentioning strawberry, corianactus and anemones and all these things. I mean, just so colorful, um, but also very rocky and sometimes um, very hazardous getting in and out. And I also cut my teeth up on the North Coast uh, in Sonoma in Gersel Cove. I did a lot of my advanced uh, diving certifications there. And that at the time was prolific. I mean, you couldn't find a place to step. There were so many abalone and red urchin and all these invertebrates and just, you know, Walt Disney can't make these colors up. It's just phenomenal. I loved being in the kelp. People were sort of afraid of the kelp. The kelp at that time was very thick, very abundant. Um, and to some people sort of scary because when you're swimming out and you're wearing uh, scuba gear, you have things that are dragging pressure gauges, fin clips, all these things. And so you can get stuck in the kelp. Or if you're underwater and the canopy is so thick and so dark, it blots out the sun. Um, you know, if you get inside of your head, you can imagine all the things that are out there looking for you. But for me, it just felt so comfortable. And it was just fascinating to me that no matter the conditions, there was always something fun to see in the kelp. There were always crabs and, uh, you know, uh, turban snails and fish. And you might see a harbor uh, seal sneaking in and out. Uh, so for me, the kelp was where all the action was. And uh, when I began teaching, you know, I really encouraged people to uh, embrace the kelp and taught them, you know, if you're, you're feeling like you're stuck, just slow down, take a breath, pause, take the stipe in front of you, bite it like it's a carrot. You know, it's very easy to bite through the kelp and you'll be able to free yourself. And also it's a good lesson for divers to be more streamlined, to not be carrying all this extra stuff that they really don't need, 
you know, you would have a lot of people that would come to class and they'd be like, oh, I'm going to have a dive knife and I'm going to, you know, and it's like, mm, you don't really need a dive knife and you're just going to get more tangled. You can just use your teeth. Right. You need a dive buddy <laughs> to help you unentangle when you get distracted and, uh, you know, try and follow that harbor seal that thinks you're, you're a playmate. And, uh, that's right. And so I, I just fell in love with it so much that even though it was almost like a premonition, even though I had no idea that I would be doing ocean advocacy and focused on conservation campaigns, let alone kelp restoration at the time, because I was such an avid kelp enthusiast, my friends all nicknamed me Kelp Princess, which is now and has been forever my Instagram handle. And so it's sort of a foreboding of what would come. That's funny. I love diving in kelp too. Do you dive with a dry suit or a wet suit? Most of my diving now is free diving. So breath hold apnea. And so I'm wearing a Yamamoto uh, open cell um, free diving suit. But when I was teaching, I would always wear a dry suit because you're in there for long periods of time. You know, you've been in the water spending a lot of time on the North Coast, um, the central and North Coast of California. What has, have you seen as a diver in the water in terms of what's happened to the kelp forest? Well, obviously it's heartbreaking and sad to see um, much less canopy and to see a less abundant ecosystem. Um, the, the truth is that I'm probably not even seeing how magnificent it actually used to be having only begun my diving in the early 2000s. You know, I hear stories from people like Sylvia Earle and I'm like, wow, what must it have looked like then? Because when I spent uh, almost every weekend in the ocean, um, whether it was in Monterey or up in Mendocino or in Sonoma, you know, you you never had a shortage of critters and conditions. And the beauty, I think, of the kelp is that not only does it create, you know, the neighborhood where all these critters live and the forage and the food that all of these invertebrates eat, um, but it's also acting, you know, as a buffer uh, when you think about things like climate change and sea level rise, um, not to mention the way that it can be a powerful tool in terms of blue carbon. And one of the cool things in California is that once upon a time, we had a fishery, a recreational fishery for red abalone, which are tasty and delicious mollusks. And it's also a, like a way of life and a tradition for many people, um, not just divers, um, families, businesses, tribes, all kinds of folks up and down the coast and even uh, inland coming to to enjoy this and a tradition of celebration and gathering. And as a free diver, you're allowed to, you know, get a fishing license, buy an abalone report card. And at the time, you could collect a certain amount. They had to be a certain size. Uh, you had to use certain equipment. And of course, it's all on breath hold. You're not allowed to do it on scuba. And so that was kind of cool, being someone who was like benefiting and harvesting from the resource and sort of understanding that I was able to do that because the marine ecosystem was so healthy. 
Well, as an ab diver um, and someone who knew what it was like to go down there with an ab iron, which is basically kind of like a big flat butter knife with a handle to try to pop off these mollusks that look like rocks on one side and then they have sort of this meaty foot on the other. Anyone who's done abalone diving knows that if you don't sneak up on them and they know that you're there and you try to stick your ab iron underneath, you're never going to get them off. So many pounds of pressure of force. And I experienced that successfully and unsuccessfully for many years. And then I would say 2015, my friend Jake and I were ab diving in Sea Ranch. And not only was there much less kelp, but I literally could lift the abalone off with my finger. I mean, the, the strength that they had was so diminished and the thickness of the meat in their bodies in the shell was so much smaller and so much thinner. And, you know, it was at that point that both, you know, a couple of things were happening relative to climate. So, you know, we've had these hot, warm water blobs and El Nino and all these sort of temperature heat wave things happening in the sea. So there was both a die off of the predator of the sea urchins that are overgrazing the kelp, but at the same time with the warming seas, the kelp was being fed less by cold water. There was less cold water, there were less nutrients. And so you had Basically, I could see with my own eyes and tell the difference from year over year where this invertebrate had been once so strong and powerful, which was just a frail, diminished version of itself such that you could literally use your hand or your pinky to pluck them off the substrate. And then the condition of the kelp on the substrate was such that there was barely any kelp for them to either cling to or feed off of. And at that point, we started to see many more purples. Like it wasn't exactly barrens yet, but you started to see where there was mostly reds historically. You started to see more of this purple pattern um, of the purple urchin. And, and what you've just described really was that perfect storm that happened oh, since 2013-14, where um, we had the warm water and lost that the, that cold, um, nutrient-rich water, which, which the kelp needed. The urchins took over, the sea stars were gone. We had no more predator for the urchin. And now um, we've lost almost 90% of the kelp on the North Coast. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, this whole relationship between the urchins, the sea otters, the sea stars, and the kelp, just so the listeners can get a real big picture of what's really happening. Sure. So um, I, although I'm old, was not around in the 1800s, but apparently <laughs> there was a very, very healthy sea otter population. And um, folks who were coming to California at the time, uh, especially around Fort Ross, um, so people were like, wow, look at these beautiful sea otters. Their fur can make amazing pelts. And I think, unfortunately, um, humans were greedy and abused a resource and basically decimated it, which is really unfortunate. I think that 
because of the decimation of the sea otter, we're not going to see a return of the sea otters in that area. Coupled with the giant sunflower sea stars, the Pycnopodia, uh, were in terms of the ecosystem, the natural main predator for the purple urchin. And as with any catastrophe, it's usually sort of a confluence of multiple things. And in addition to the warming seas and harmful algal blooms and all these other factors and stressors and climate impacts in the region, there was a sea star wasting disease um, that I don't fully understand, but many smart people are looking at it, um, where the giant sunflower sea star, the Pycnopodia, was just disappeared. Um, and there is more research needed to understand what, what triggered it and how it happened. And then more information needed to understand, can we bring this Pycnopodia back? Because that would help create a little more balance in this already overstressed, unbalanced system. And so what we have to do, I think, is really lend ourselves to the philosophy of the Native American tribes who have been here for millennia and think about what are we doing and how is it going to impact generations and people and habitats going forward. Because without that long vision in mind, I think everything becomes a kind of like crisis, knee-jerk, urgent reaction. But the reality is it took a while for us to get here. Um, and I, this is sort of a good news, bad news philosophy. The bad news is that we're the problem, we humans. The good news is we're the solution. <laughs> There's so many solutions. There's so many things we can do. There's so many things that we can reveal and innovate and try and monitor and manage. And so um, I'm not someone who is here for the doom and gloom, but I do believe with an eye towards wanting to have restoration and sustainability um, that we can bring back more of a balance because it's not just a sort of seasonal cyclical sort of change. These things are happening because of the actions or the inaction that we've taken for decades before. So let's uh, go to some of those practical solutions. Individuals and communities in the state begin to respond. How are they responding? You're very much engaged in, in finding these solutions. What form are they taking? Well, because it is such a complicated, nuanced, complex problem, there are a myriad of approaches and there are different tactics. And the solution is going to be a solution that is multi-pronged. It's not going to be just one thing. Um, and I happen to um, co-chair a work group around kelp restoration uh, that was a joint collaboration between the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and uh, the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary. And we invited everyone to participate. So all the tribes, all the academics, all the NGOs, all the divers, all the students, residents, you name it. Um, everyone was invited because what we really needed was all hands on deck, all perspectives, all voices, and really to sort of combine the strengths of all these different facets to be able to say, you know, here's how we can approach it. 
granted, everyone might have had a different sort of goal in terms of how they would approach it or why they would approach it. But the overall goal of having healthy and productive kelp forests was unanimous. And so that was a great place to start. Um, the other thing I had mentioned, the abalone recreational fishery. So the Department of Fish and Wildlife closed that recreational fishery. And then, of course, the purple urchin were also overgrazing all the red urchin, which is uni, if you go to a sushi bar and you like to have uni. And so some of the commercial urchin fishermen were sort of out of work. And so you have all these people who are like, you know, chomping at the bit to do something. And the good news is that we were able to harness that energy to say, well, let's start and let's have some volunteer urchin removals. And out of those volunteer removal efforts, a lot of great, more foundational work was established where the California Natural Resources Agency through the Ocean Protection Council has actually funded in uh, Noyo Harbor and Casper Cove up in the north, some real sub significant removals at a commercial level with the help of Reef Check and the Noyo Center for Marine Sciences spearheading this work. And so again, that came out of this volunteer effort that was started by people like Josh Russo and the Waterman's Alliance, you know, raising money to pay the commercial guys. And then the state paid attention and came out, Mike Ezra came out to one of our volunteer removals and he's like, you know, this is important. And, you know, up the ladder it went. And then a year and a half later, here comes half a million dollars. And that's great. And that's just one way to address restoration in hand. Another way is to look at outplanting. What we need to do and what we want to do is increase the spore bank near shore in areas where we've seen historical persistence, right? And so that takes a whole other group of people. And then we were joined by folks. Kelp spores. Kelp spores, yes, yes, always kelp. <laughs> all kelp all the time. Um, uh, the Nature Conservancy and the Greater Farallons Association with volunteers and academics and UCLA did the largest, in the state of California, the largest mapping, I think it was like 11 million hectares, or I'm forgetting the designation, but suffice it to say, the largest aerial drone survey mapping the state of California to understand where canopy was and where canopy isn't. Um, and to be able to look at that data and understand the before and afters is hugely important. And so I'm just listing a couple of things. There are so many other efforts, including groups like Urchinomics, which are saying, okay, these purple kelp, they're basically too skinny to eat. They're too skinny for the humans to eat. They're too skinny for the otters to eat. They're basically just anorexic urchin. So maybe we can farm them. Maybe we can harvest them out of where they are, fatten them up, and maybe we can make a market out of it. And so it's with this kind of how do we solve it? How do we leverage it? How do we make sure we're doing things that make sense? You know, everything's going to be a little bit of trial and error. And so we have to allow room for not thinking that only one thing is the solution, so Natasha, with, with your documentary, our documentary on the kelp, you're going to get in the water with uh, Francesca? 
I hope so. Um, Francesca and I have been talking about a lot of different things that are going on in terms of kelp restoration. I'd love to go diving with you. Um, And, you know, I think just in terms of what you just said, Francesca, which is so important, like why, why should people care about kelp? And this is really the message we want to tell in our film um, or leave people with is why should someone on the East coast or in Colorado, in the inland, you know, in the inland States, why should, why should they care about kelp? They might not even know what kelp is and why is this ecosystem so important? It's more than just the Northern California issue. This is a global issue. Kelp um, is, a, is a huge you know, piece of our, our, in terms of climate issues in the ocean and on land. Um, so I'm just curious, Francesca, what you say to folks who might not even know what kelp is or care about kelp why should they be concerned and how can they make it how can people make a difference i think it's important to remember that everything is connected and what we're seeing underwater and in the ocean is mirroring what is also happening on land and you know we have one blue planet our ocean home and this is the one planet that we all inhabit and we're all neighbors and we all want to be good neighbors and we all require the same things and we all want to see each other succeed. And I think if there's something that the pandemic taught us is that we need to be able to go and spend time and heal ourselves and get reinvigorated and get restored through nature. And it's so powerful and if we're going to be able to do that and enjoy these wild, raw, beautiful places, including kelp forests, including redwood forests, including anywhere where people are getting just a respite of returning to some semblance of everything is going to be okay, then we need to take care of it. Because in, in every way that you can imagine, the benefits far outweigh the costs or the expense or the trouble that it might take to maintain something. Um, And there are so many ways that people can share in this. Um, It is something that if you're not someone who's living on the coast or spending time in the water, there are a lot of great students and artists that are doing art and doing videos and you guys are doing a film. And it's just, I think, inspirational in terms of understanding this marvelous world that we live in. How do I or any diver listeners who want to help in the restoration um, get involved to become volunteer divers? So if folks are already certified uh, recreational scuba divers um, and they want to be more involved, they can go to reefcheck.org. And there's actually a new certification, a specialty for kelp restoration, where they can learn how to and where to remove um, the purple urchin and do it responsibly and appropriately. Um, And there are a couple of different things going on. There's Giant Giant Kelp Project. You can Google that and check that out. Tankers Reef. There's cool stuff. And then if you're not a certified diver and you just want to learn more and you want to help, Uh, You can go to farallons.org, F-A-R-A-L-L-O-N-E-S.org to learn more. And then on Facebook, for people who want to do, um, if you're a free diver or a 
someone who just wants to help and be organizing on the beach, uh, you can go to the Waterman's Alliance on Facebook and learn more when there are events and volunteer. And again, everyone can help. Everyone can participate. There's always something. And depending on what you're really good at and what you really love, if you don't see it happening, but you raise your hand and you volunteer and you say, oh, you know, I'm a musician, I can do this, or I'm a basket weaver, I can do this. Someone's going to say, great, we need that, come join us. So it's a very collaborative and inclusive effort. And quite frankly, there might be another great idea that we haven't even thought of. So we encourage people to submit those ideas. I would be very excited to take a trip to California and get that certification to add to my lionfish spear hunting yes. certification. Um, mm -hmm. Because we all can see our habitats are changing. And since we are the cause, as you said earlier in the podcast, we need to be part of the solution. The benefit about the lionfish, though, is that they're tasty. You can eat the lionfish. <laughs> that is true. We might have come up with another tasty opportunity with uh, the urchins. Um, but with that, I really want to thank you for joining us. And um, this has been really educational and informative. And I hope that all of our listeners take the opportunity to go to California and help out with the restoration or sing some songs about it and find a way to get involved because you're absolutely right. We are all neighbors in this great big blue planet. So thank you so much for joining us, Natasha. Thank you for joining us as well. And David, um, we'll see you for the next podcast or maybe we'll hear you at the next podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helbarg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.